Those of you who are joining us this evening, thanks for being here. We have been going through verse by verse through the book of Colossians, and we are coming to the very end of it right now. And so rather than wait until Thanksgiving weekend, I thought we would do morning and evening this evening. And the application for this one is we're right now in a time period where we're talking about isolation. And we know that isolation has some tremendous negative impact on individuals. Some of you sitting here this evening, you have had loved ones who have been affected by the isolation factor that has caused deep depression that has even cost people their lives. We know that when people are isolated, there are all kinds of difficulties and challenges that happen. We know from studies, and we're going to probably in 10 years have a lot of studies from this COVID era that are going to substantiate it even more, that there's a lot of bad side effects from isolation. But there's been studies that talk about how people are affected physically when they don't have interaction with individuals. There have been times in history that people have cruelly tried to experiment with children and taken youngsters such as uh, Frederick the Great had several youngsters, I think there was 13 or 15 of them, he wanted to know what was the heavenly language. And his idea was that everybody knows the heavenly language, but when we come to this earth, we are persuaded to drop and forget that language and we learn whatever language we speak when we're around people. And so what he did is he had those 13, 15 babies that were birthed. He took them from the parents, put them in some type of an isolation spot in some monastery, and nobody was to speak to them. So that those children, when they got older, they would start speaking the heavenly language that they had left behind in heaven, according to his theology. Every one of those children died within months. Not because of other illnesses that they knew of, but because there was no interaction, no communication. We know that it is really, really serious. And it's important that we don't have isolation. In fact, you can go into history and you can find accounts that oftentimes when they wanted to break prisoners, one of the things they would do was they would use isolation that would cause people to be just, they want to communicate, they want to express, and all of a sudden they would spill more information than they should. The reality is we are created social creatures. God has created us to be interacting with one another. And so that isolation can really be a negative. And for Paul, he is writing this epistle from prison. But he is not isolated. He is not alone. As we went through this passage this morning, we pointed out that Paul, as he writes this, he talks about his fellow prisoners, Aristarchus. He talks about Epaphras, who is with him. talks about Mark, who is with him. Paul frequently, the Apostle Paul, had people with him. We're going to see several of those names this evening. But if I just took the book of Romans and showed you from just one chapter, chapter 16, the number of people that Paul interacted with, he has friends. He has individuals that he is communicating with, he is spending time with, he is interacting. And so it's a tremendous passage that we come to where Paul is talking friend to friend to those individuals in Colossae that he is catching up with, that he's talking with, that he's sharing with. And in this section, we call it Paul's photo album of who his contacts are, who his friends are. Let's just, again, read it again for our, our information because I'm just going to highlight spat, spots out of it rather than do a verse by verse. But for this evening, let's read again the text. It says, All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a ser- fellow servant in the Lord, whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose, that he might know your estate, comfort your hearts, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, that they shall make known unto you all the things which are done here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, he salutes you. And Marcus, sister son to Barnabas, touching of whom you have received commandments, if he comes unto you, receive him. 
and Jesus, which is called justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers in the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, salutes you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he has a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea, them in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas, they greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea, Nymphus, including Nymphus, he says, whose, uh, whose home is the housing the church. And when this epistle is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans that you likewise read the epistle from the Laodiceans. Paul wrote two letters, one Colossians, one to Laodicea. And say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. The salutation by the hand of me, Paul, remember my bonds, grace be unto you, amen. We talked this morning that this text shows us a lot about God. It reveals several simple truths that we highlighted, how God can forgive and change anyone, the Onesimus is the Marcus, the ideas how God can use anyone, the no-names, people that we've never even read outside this passage, people who didn't do a whole lot but just come and visit Paul or just carry the letters, but they were greatly used of the Lord. And we talked about how we should never minimize the contacts we can have with one another and how we can encourage one another. We talked about how God will one day commend all who serve. That was an aspect of looking at this verse. What does it tell me about God? This evening, let's reverse this and let's go on this level. What does this passage tell me? Not about me and God, but about me and you. How we interact with one another. What illustrations, what, what facts does it give us? What encouragement from the Spirit of God that we can learn from His inspired Word how we should interact with each other? Let me make three different statements that are from Paul's life. Number one is this. We learn when it comes to human friendships that we need to be having good friends around us and to be a good friend to others. Paul is in that situation. Paul, by his example, says, I need good friends. And he shows it in this text. He tells us how he needed people. Remember this billionaire, some of you remember years ago? His name was Howard Hughes. He was the richest man in the United States a number of years ago. The man went nuts. The man was crazy. The man became very bizarre. He made the statement he'd give up everything for one good friend. Well, Paul had many of them. Paul is one of those that he understood how Ecclesiastes talks about two are better than one, that if you're working together, the one will lift up the fellow, but woe to one who is alone and falls, for he hath not another to help him. Again, if two lie together when they have heat, how can one be warm alone? The idea of friendship is encouraged in Scripture. And Paul had that benefit, and he knew I needed it, because Paul, even though he was the apostle, living God, for the Lord Jesus Christ, giving out the word of God, starting churches, doing far more ministry than all of us combined. He knew that even despite what he was doing, he needed to have friends around him to encourage him, that he got discouraged. We read it already. He says, these people have been a comfort to me. Despite his position as a man of God, as a servant of God, as being filled by the spirit of God, he needed people to encourage him. That's exactly what we have in scriptures, time and time and time again, how believers need to come around one another to build one another up. Jesus Christ, even in the Garden of Gethsemane, says to his friends, won't you watch with me? Won't you pray with me? My heart is grieving, and I need your help, your assistance in that way of praying with me, praying for me. It is critical that we have individuals to comfort us. But Paul says in his example, I need individuals around me not only to comfort, but Paul is in prison. He can't do ministry anymore. 
He can't do what he's used to doing. He can't go out freely. And so he says, as we looked at this morning, these individuals will help me out by Tychicus carrying the letter, by Onesimus making all things known unto you. And so there's times where we need individuals to help us to do what we're supposed to be doing in the service of the Lord. Oftentimes, we only see, like in a church, we only see the pulpit ministry, the online ministry, the upfront individuals, but we are like an iceberg. An iceberg, we see the beauty of it. Some of you have, have traveled, you have seen the icebergs in pictures, or you've seen them on sites. As some of you have said, you've done the coast of Alaska and you saw the bergs there. And typically, even though we see the beauty of the iceberg and we're amazed by that, we don't see the full iceberg. Typically, one, only one-tenth of, of the average iceberg is above water. The rest of it is below water. The same thing is in a ministry like this. You might see just the surface, just the, the preaching. There is so much more that is behind the scenes. And Paul knew that. Paul knew he needed people. He needed his friends. He wouldn't do the ministry without those friends. Listen, folks. The reality is that we as a church have been around since... 1979. We have had a really fun run with this ministry over the years. The Lord has blessed, but it is not possible because of the two pastors that we've had over all these years. Without the assistant pastors, this ministry wouldn't function. Without the help that we have from deacons, this ministry would never have prospered. Without the help from so many of you in the congregation who have taught, who have labored, who have done the work of ministering and encouraging and giving out the gospel tracts, we wouldn't be where we're at today. We need others to be ministering to you. You have a valuable input. And Paul says, that's what I need with friends. I know that my friends need to be helping. And he kept friendships even though he got burnt with friendships. There was times in Paul's life where Paul had close friends and things didn't work out quite the way he thought. Do you remember how we look back in his story that he and we mentioned this morning, he and his close contact, the one who discipled him, the one who introduced him to really serving Christ, Barnabas, they got along, they worked together for several years, they were co-teammates in serving Christ and being good friends one to another. But all of a sudden, they had, a, they had a falling out. We talked about this morning. It was over John Mark. It was over Barnabas' son. But they disagreed with the ministry. And the contention was so great that they separated. That hurt. That, that caused some pain and some, some decision-making. And yet, Paul didn't say, I'll never have another friend. I'll never let somebody burn me again. He didn't do that. He wisely realized that even though there might come moments in my life where somebody may disappoint me, somebody may, may all of a sudden, we, we have a conflict, and it really hurts, and it's really terrible. That doesn't mean I just cast out the baby with the bathwater, and I have no friends ever. In fact, where, where we read in scriptures where there's that time where Paul is, he's good friends with Peter, one of the, the apostles. They, they all had that calling of God, that he and Peter come and they have loggerheads. Do you remember the setting of when it happens in Galatians? It's a time when in Galatians 2, they're ministering in the church of Galatia, and all of a sudden, while Paul is ministering there, he sees Peter. Peter all of a sudden is responding and reverting back to his Judaism, to his prejudices that he had against Gentiles. And Peter, because he sees other people that Peter knew come from Jerusalem, come walking in the door, Peter gets up from the table where he's sitting with the Gentiles, and he moves to another spot. And he hurts those Gentiles. 
And Paul and Peter had already preached in, in Acts chapter 15. They've already been at the Jerusalem Council and saying, this is wrong. We shouldn't have division between Jews and Greeks. But now Peter slips back into that prejudice. And when he goes back into that prejudice, that hurt Paul. Paul said, I had to f- confront him face to face. Should Paul have responded and said, man, my friend, my good friend, my, my co-laborer, he, he just blew it. I'm never going to have another partner. I'm never going to teammate with anybody else. Didn't do it. He wisely knew he needed friends, that he desperately needed individuals to give him encouragement. We read in Philippians chapter 1 that when he's in prison, he writes and he says, I thank God that I have the opportunity while I'm in prison to share the gospel with the people who are of the palace, who are some of the guards. But he says, some of my friends, some others are sharing the gospel in, in a different way, in a different fashion, he says, and they're trying to, and he basically says, they're trying to hurt me. They're not doing it out of a good, a good heart. But he says, I still thank God that the gospel is getting out. I don't like why they're doing it, because they're attacking me, and they're, and they're trying to whatever and however they did it. But he responds even afterwards by saying, that doesn't mean I just give up on people. And I'm just going to go up north, I'm going to hide out in the Poconos, and I'm never going to have a friend again in my life. That's not Paul. That's not biblical. It's, it's the idea that you and I maintain contact with other people. And we do it in a fashion that honors the Lord. And so we know from Paul's life and from others that Paul had friends. Here's the, the practicality of this thought. What type of friends should you have? What type of friends should you have? Let, let's go from this, from this passage... Let's find out what is illustrated and inspired by God, what type of friends we should be having. And can I highlight several things that stand out about the people that Paul lists here without rehearsing what we did this morning and give you all their background. But building on that, I want you to to identify several thoughts here. That when Paul chose friends, he was friends with both saved and unsaved individuals. He was friends with individuals who were following Jesus Christ and some who weren't following Jesus Christ. You look at the text and he mentions several of these people. He identifies that they are believers, that they have followed, they have committed to Christ. They're beloved, they're fellow servants, they're serving. He's given their stories elsewhere. But in that same passage, he makes it clear that he was also friends with another individual, Onesimus, who was a slave who had run away who has ended up in, in with Paul at the prison in Rome, somehow, someway, they interacted with one another, and Paul befriended him. And when Paul befriended him, Paul was able to share his faith with him and bring him to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so now he writes, and he says in the other epistle, he says uh, that Onesimus is one whom I have begotten in my bonds, saying that he had led him to the Lord. And he makes the comment that he has become a faithful and beloved brother. That means that when we're choosing friends, if we're following this example, we have close friends who are saved. But we also want to have friends with people who aren't saved. I'll come back to that in a few moments. But let me show you something else. He had people, friends, from different nationalities. As you go through this text and identify these people, we know that several were Jews. Paul was a Jew. But we also know that from this passage, he makes a clear Onesimus, Epaphras. He talks about them who being part of the church of Colossae, they were not, or part of the, the peoples of Colossae, they were Gentiles. Typically, there would be severe prejudice between the Jews and the Gentiles. You know that if you've studied your Bible. In any, in any sense, the Jews didn't want to have anything to do with the Gentiles. The Gentiles thought the Jews were nuts. That they were, that in, in all of that region of the Roman Empire, the Jews were disdained, despised 
by most of all the different groupings, people groups, because the Jews were odd. And so Paul says, okay, I'm part of that odd people group, but I still have friends with people who aren't of the same nationality as me, who aren't of that same, you know, that same background as me. We could even say, you know, in a prejudiced world, he was not a prejudiced person, that he wasn't choosing friendships based upon the way somebody talks, the way somebody looks, the way somebody, you know, their, their ethnic background, which is a challenge for us. And we know that this is an issue. This is an issue in our country right now, all the, the racial divide and all the accusations and all the challenges that are there. And it's frustrating to us. And we, don't, we wish it wasn't there, but there is that, that issue that's happening. In fact, there was a study that was done that in 2014 they polled a number of people. And they were trying to see what about different peoples of different ethnic groups, what do they do in reaching out to people of other ethnic groups? This doesn't bode well for you and me. Because what they found out is that here in America when they focus in on just two groups, not, this didn't deal with uh, Latinos, it doesn't deal with the Hispanics, it doesn't deal with others. It, they just, it just, I'm taking part of the survey that talks about whites and blacks. And in this survey, what they found out, they said, okay, the average black person, if he were to list out 100 people who were his friends, here's what they found out, that the majority of his friends were black, and he had like eight that were white. Then they did the, uh, the same thing with white people as a whole here in, a, in their survey. And they found out that when it comes to the white person, the average white person, out of the 100 friends, he might have one black person who is a friend and the rest are whites. We understand why that may be. It can, it can be because of where we live. I grew up in an area in central Minnesota. There wasn't people of different racial backgrounds. There wasn't that opportunity. That's not what, what strikes me with this. What strikes me is the question when they asked, what about your desire to reach out to somebody of a different race? This is the question that, in this poll, I found most challenging. When they asked, it was typical of the black individuals that there was almost a 50% say, I will try, I would like to, I don't have a problem with having a white friend. But over three-quarters of the white people admitted that they wouldn't even want to work at having a friendship with somebody of a different race. I think from a Christian point of view, that is a shame. If we as believers were to adopt that, because we're not supposed to have prejudice. We're not supposed to have, have animosity. We're to be the people that are the light of the world, that we're going to be reaching out to everyone with the gospel, not just people who look like us. Okay? And so that concept, and you and I need to get it into our head, that says, wait a minute, if we're going to be in heaven and we're, we're, and we're anxious to get into heaven and see the Lord and live with all these people, you better get used to living with them now, okay? Because if they're born again, they're going to be with us in heaven for a long time. So let's develop friendships now. And Paul was one who wasn't biased, who wasn't prejudiced. Paul and his friendships, he, he fellowshiped with people of different social levels. You do realize that sometimes in churches, people will have nothing to do with others who don't have the same fancy cars, don't dress in the same types of clothes, don't, you know, don't have the same whatever. And here in Paul's example that we just point out, Paul was a friend with a slave. He was also a friend, the passage says, with Luke, who was a doctor. In that society, doctors were highly esteemed, usually well-educated, well-respected, not like slaves, like Onesimus, who he gave his story. He's mentioned here, Nymphus, 
is an individual, male or female, we're not sure, at the end of the chapter, and it talks about he had the, the church meeting in their house. They obviously had a house. They obviously were wealthy enough to have that type of thing. Philemon, who is a part of the church of Colossae, he's wealthy enough to have slaves. He had Onesimus before Onesimus ran away. Paul was able to relate and to interact with people who were of a poverty status and people who were of a high prestige status. He wasn't prejudiced based on social issues. And yet when we come to 2020, we get bent out of shape. We don't want to have anything to do with somebody who doesn't play sports the way we play sports. Somebody who doesn't drive the same type of vehicle. Somebody who doesn't have as classy of phones as what we have. And Paul challenges us that when it comes to friends, it shouldn't be based on social situations, on finances. We should be looking at the person. And how is this person, how can I minister to them? How can they minister to me? And what do we have in common as Christians? What do we have in common? Can I point out something else? He was friends with people who were imperfect. People who at times had disappointed him. The classic example that we talked about this morning was John Mark. John Mark and Paul wanted nothing to do with him back in Acts chapter 15 when he bailed on the, on the missions trip. But now, years later, he writes about John Mark being profitable, John Mark being helpful. Paul could get over those conflicts that he had with John Mark and be able to say, even though he has a past, even though he, he disappointed me, he, he's grown, he's matured, we can be friends. And he can minister to me and I to him. The more classic example out of this text is Onesimus. Onesimus has a history. Onesimus is a runaway slave. He's sending him back to his master. His, he, Onesimus has no idea what his master is going to do. As we talked about this morning, Paul is saying, Onesimus, go back to, to Colossae, see your master, make things right. His master could kill him. His master could have him, as we pointed out, have him branded. Paul is befriending this guy. This guy who has a history, who isn't everything that, that we think he should be. And Paul, it doesn't bother Paul. Paul says, I'm going to be friend with somebody who has made mistakes. Somebody who has struggled in, in their life. Somebody who has repented and made some differences. Now, I'm going back in history, but there's a gentleman by the name of Pepper Rogers who writes in his stories about leadership and how in his, he learned leadership skills and things of that sort when he was head of a, of a major, uh, major sports program here in the United States. And back in the 70s, he was in charge of UCLA's, that's on the West Coast. Their major university was a powerhouse football team during the 70s and 80s. And he writes about how he went through a season or two where they were losing a lot of games. And he says, when we started losing games, well, let me back up. When we were winning games, everybody, they, they loved me. Everybody wanted to be my friend. I had no problems with making a phone call and somebody saying, you know, hey, hey I'll gladly talk with you. I'm not going to put you on hold. But he says, all of a sudden, when he went into that losing season, when he went into that point, he says, all of a sudden, he couldn't get people on the phone. He couldn't get responses from individuals. They didn't want anything to do with them. Nobody was giving them dinner invites. Nobody wanted to spend time with them. And he says in his book, he writes about it, he says, I got really, really discouraged because all of my friends bailed on me because I wasn't as successful as what they thought I should be. And he says, and as a result, he says, I remember saying to my wife one day that the only one, the only one who is really being a friend to me is my dog. Everybody else is gone. And he made this comment to his wife. He says, I really wish I had two good friends. So his wife bought him another dog. That didn't settle it. 
That didn't settle it. As he writes about it, he says, you know, his wife it did cheer him up. But he says, until he became successful and started winning, people stayed away from him. Isn't that a shame? Isn't that a shame? And, and yet, what about us? What, is it, what happens if somebody doesn't live up to our criteria? Do we then all of a sudden just avoid them? Do we just write them off? Somebody comes walking in the door of this church or church wherever you're, you're attending. Do you reach out if they don't look like you? If they don't look as prosperous as you? If they don't show the same skill set as you? The Apostle Paul, led by the Spirit of God, is writing about his friends and he's saying, when it comes to friendships, I realize how important it is to have a good friend. Because if it wasn't for Barnabas, even though I was called of God to preach, even though that God had saved me, I couldn't get anywhere. I needed a Barnabas to come beside me, to help me in my very basic Christianity, to help me get involved. And so he knew that he needed to get involved with others the way somebody got involved with him. And somebody helped him and somebody mentored him. And he says, that's what I'm going to do. I mean, I'm saying this right now and I think back in my life. How when I was 16 and I got saved at that point in my life, going between my junior and senior year in high school, and I for the first time heard the gospel, never heard it in my life, grew up in a, in a town where the Bible wasn't, wasn't read. We were told we couldn't have Bibles. We were told that the Bible isn't true. Some of you are so blessed that you've grown up and, like Devin said, growing up in a home where the word was taught and it was presented and it was believed and being in a, in a Christian school environment, I didn't have that. I didn't have that at all. I had everything that was against the Word of God. In fact, when we got saved, we were told by the church leaders that we can't read the Bible. We never should read the Bible. It wasn't meant for us. So growing up in that, when we first got saved, it was like somebody. Is there another teenager in the world who believes this about Jesus? Or now am I the only one besides my brother? Are we the only ones now in the whole world? Nobody in our town believed the way we did. Nobody in our town wanted to talk about the Bible. And I was so critical that other teens in another town when we went to visit their church, that they would reach out to us and befriend us as 16-year-olds who were just trying to figure out what do we do. And then on top of it, okay, how do we pray now? All we ever knew was canned prayers. How do we pray? How, how, do we, how do we come to church? How do we sit in church? What are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to talk? You know, we think it's supposed to be different, that we're not supposed to be cussing and cursing. And we think that going out for beers and different things and illegal drinking and all that, that was our life. And all of a sudden we were looking for somebody to help us. And thank God there was a few people, a few teens, that gave us some good direction. One of those few was my wife. And so there's, there's individuals that we, we need, we look to and we say, hey, even if there's a background there, reach out, reach out to them. Paul especially became close to those who are serving Christ. Let, let me point out from this text, all these comments. He says, Tychicus, a faithful minister and fellow servant. Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner. Mark, Jesus' justice, my fellow workers under the kingdom of God who came and they comforted me. Epaphras, a servant of Christ. Those who he was closest to were individuals who were serving the Lord. And there's a reason for that. Okay? Because who we hang around with is what we become. 
And Paul realized that it was really, really critical. There was a study that was done over a period of several, several decades. It's called, not the Truman story, but it's called the Truman study. And what they did is they followed individuals from their early childhood birth all the way up through their adulthood into their senior years. And they did this study. And then as they did this study, they came to a major conclusion about these dozens of people that they did this research and kept tabs on for their entire life. You know what the underlying, the major lesson that they said, this is what we found out. It's this. People we surround ourselves with are who we become. If we hang around people who are lazy, we become lazy. If we hang around people who are discouraged and despondent, and they become the ones that we hang around, we usually get that same negative spirit. If we hang around people who, uh, who are industrious and honest, we, that impacts us. You know, they didn't have to do that whole study and spend thousands and thousands and thousands of money that the government put into their study. They didn't need to do that. All they had to do was turn to the Word of God and read in Proverbs, which I'm paraphrasing. Walk with the wise and become wise. Associate with fools, you get in trouble. The fact of the matter is, we hang around people that we want to be like or who are like us. And sometimes we should hang around people who aren't like us and hang around people that would challenge us to become more of what God wants us to be. And Paul in his life, he did this. Paul was an individual that his closest friends, his closest advisors, weren't individuals who saw the world always the same as him, but they could challenge him. They could say, hey, wait a minute, you need to rethink your thoughts about John Mark. They, they could, they could you know, be iron against iron. And as a result, Paul grew even more with a Barnabas, with others who were challenging and encouraging and doing that. But that isn't to the neglect of being separated and isolated from unsaved individuals. You need a balance in your life. You need to have friends who are walking with the Lord in a, in a plane that, to you, is a higher plane than you. So you are challenged that they can pull you up. But at the same time, you need to have friends who don't know the Lord so you can reach down and help them. And so Paul, and we look at his friendships, he chose peoples. Now, here's what I want to wrap up with the next few minutes. How did he treat those people? Those who were close to him, what did he do? How did he treat them? And again, we're not going and looking every single phrase. We did a, a more of the phraseology this morning. But I want to make, out some, make several statements about this. Paul got to know his friends. He got to know his friends. It, watch what happens. He knew that Mark, and, Mark was a nephew of Barnabas. He knew Onesimus, he, where he was from. He knew Aristarchus, Mark, Justice, they were Jewish. He knew Epaphras, where he was from. He knew Epaphras' prayer life. He spends two verses talking about how he prays. He knew Luke was a beloved physician. He knew that Nymphus, whoever that is, has a church meeting in their house, even though Paul's never been there. Paul has, has an awareness. We had somebody stop by here and do business with us, some people from the community. And when they were here, it was very interesting. We got in conversation, and they came to introduce a change in the, in the leadership of this business that we have business with. And while we were talking, I started asking questions of the new person. And as we're talking and asking questions of the new person, it was very interesting the other individual who had mentored them in the business, the individual that they had been with together, working together for years now, right? That they've been working. The other person kept on saying, oh, I didn't know that about you. Oh, I didn't know that about you. Oh, I, I don't know if I've ever asked you that before. 
And in a half hour, that person got to know the person they were working with that they hadn't known well. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, do I know the people I work with? Probably too well. Amen? Amen? Yeah? Yeah. But getting to know people, do you really know your friends? Or is it one of these things? Hey, how you doing? And when they start telling you, you don't want to hear. You don't have time for it. Paul got time to know the individuals. Any of you ever hear this guy in the past? Okay. He's from old school, old Dale Carnegie, uh, mid-60s, very popular about how, you know, the book that he put out. Became, became a business classic about how to get to know people, how to make people comfortable. And, he, and one of the things, getting to know people, what he put down was this, become genuinely interested in other people. Because who do people like to talk about the most? Then ask them about themselves. Instead of you have to always put in, well, you know, I can one-up you. He just The idea has become genuinely interested. Smile was another comment that he made. He made a comment, remember people's names. Get to know who they are, their names. What's your problem with, with people and their names? I reach out my hand and say, hi, my name's Wayne. And I don't hear their name as much as I hear, did they repeat my name right? Wayne isn't the bad one. It's the Burgraph. Okay? Did you get Burgraph right? And I don't listen for their name. I'm more concerned that they get my name. But isn't it interesting when people know your name and they repeat your name, how that... They remembered me. You want to do one more on that? Get to know people's kids' names. Okay, if you know their kids' names, they think you really love them. I shouldn't say that the way. <laughs> I shouldn't say they think. It is a display that, yes, you really are concerned about them. The, the other thing, be a good listener. He talked and talked in terms of what they treat others the way you want to be treated. Let, let's take that a little bit step further. Here's what Paul did. Number two, that stands out. He got close to these people. Well, how do I know that? My beloved brother, Onesimus, my brother, Luke, my beloved physician. He got close and he let them get close to him. This is a challenge for some here in this room. Letting people get close to you. Letting people get to know you. Letting people know where you're struggling, where you're challenged, where, you're, where, where there's difficulties in your life. Let's take number three. He let them minister to him. As they got to know him, he says, these people have been a comfort to me. In other words, I needed them. And I let them know I needed them. And I let them minister to me. But some of us, this is the way we are. We are, somebody asks how we're doing. We're always doing great. There's never a problem. There's never an issue in our life. Then we go home and we say, nobody cares. Because we never are transparent. We never let people do for us. But Paul knew that in friendships, we do for them and we let them do for us. That there's nothing super spiritual about always being on top of everything because none of us are there let me give you another thought here number four he believed them he believed in his friends he believed when they told him something he believed that onesimus was genuine when onesimus repented of his sin Remember, Onesimus is a runaway slave. And Paul is saying, you need to repent, go back to your master. What does Paul do that shows real trust in Onesimus? He lets him go. He lets him go with Tychicus and he's going back. 
Paul believed that this man would do what he's supposed to do and let him return to Philemon. He didn't say, I'm going to hold your hand until years later when I get there and then I, t- I present you because I don't know if I can trust you out of my sight. He showed confidence in a friend. Something else that he did, number five, he treated them as equals, as team members. I do know this. I understand this. Paul was the team leader of that ministry team. He was the one that was the apostle. That, that's not what I mean. Okay, I'm not meaning that he just gave up and said we're always equals and all other things. What I'm saying is watch the terms. He says, as you know, he's the team leader. He says, I'm not going to be demeaning. I'm not going to undercut you. He says, you're my fellow servant. You're my fellow prisoner. You're my fellow worker. And he let them understand and know he relied upon them. They were necessary. They were important. They were helpful. They were a part of this team effort. Yes, I'm the team leader, Paul says, but I needed you. Yes, I'm the captain of the soccer team, uh, captain of the basketball team, and I'm the star player. What good is it if you're the only one against five or against 11? You need the others. And Paul had an attitude where he treated them on an equal basis. Number six, he was willing to restore relationships. Paul had that desire to make sure he's right with his friends. Not holding something against them. Not being upset with them for, for this, this, the rest of their life. We were just talking about somebody was, was one of the folk was saying that they were ministering to a family that in this family, I don't even remember the occasion, but in this family, the, the family members, they had a falling out decades ago. And just recently there was a loss of one of the family members and they never talked to each other for over 30 years. Siblings makes no sense makes absolutely no sense here Paul he's he's open to restoring and he was open to it John Mark had disappointed they had they had separated in ministry but now clearly he was willing and wanting to restore relationships with John Mark so much so that they did restore it then now he's able to write and he says that John Mark is profitable to me that he is comforting me and we're together he was willing now again it could be It could be in this case, Paul needed to be the one to ask for forgiveness. I don't know. I don't know what the reason was that that John Mark abandoned, as we shared this morning. But the point is, there was a reconciliation. And Paul didn't hold it against him. Think about your friends. They ticked you off. How long do you stay mad? How long do you want to just punish them? How long are are they absolutely, I'm never going to have anything to do with them again? Now, we understand there are moments that that may happen and may be wise. But probably not the majority of cases it happens. In this case, he has the individual where he says, like God, Jesus Christ said, have your gift, and again, I'm paraphrasing, have your gift in front of the altar. There you stand. Hey, listen, if there's a problem with somebody, go and be reconciled before you continue in that offering. Jesus says reconciliation is important. Relationships are really, really critical. If the relationships here are broken, this relationship is broken. We know that. If husband and wife relationships are a problem, men, your prayers are not answered. God isn't hearing you. We know that that's the case when we do a communion service. Make sure we're right with one another. We know it should be that way all the time, that we're practicing with the idea that we bear with each other, forgive one another. If any man has a grievance, forgive as the Lord would forgive. That was in the lesson several weeks back in this book. That because Christ forgave us, we need to be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as Christ, for, for, for God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven us. 
That idea is reconciliation. In fact, Paul was so big on reconciliation, Onesimus, you need to go back and get right with Philemon. Let me give you something else here. Again, we're just winding down here. He helped them. Here's a real friend. He helped them. He introduces Tychicus. That he says, Tychicus is coming. He's, I'm going to tell you, he's the carrier. He vouched for him. He encouraged the Colossians to receive John Mark. When John Mark comes, he writes the letters. Why? Because Epaphras, who is the pastor of that church, is saying, help me, help me. I need... Paul took the time to do it. When's the last time a friend asked you to give him a hand and you still haven't done it? Could you talk to so-and-so and you still haven't done it? Friends are there to help, not just in word, but in deed. He is one who wrote the Colossians. Never been there, but he writes to them. He even says to, a, to a Philemon, when Onesimus comes, if he stole from you, put it to my account. Put it to my account. I, I'm going to get involved. I'm vouching for this guy. Number, number eight, let me move on. Number eight, he showed a trust in others to do important tasks. He, he, well, that's just what it says. Tychicus, I trust you. Tychicus, you do it. You comfort. Onesimus, you do it. Do you trust your friends? Do you trust them enough that when you ask them to do something, you let it, I guess, I guess this is, to me, the biggest application here is parenting. Do you build a trust factor in your kids that when you ask them, give them a job, you let them do the job? You show that you trust them instead of hovering over them and nagging him about it. There's a balance there, and it's really important. Number nine, and ten will wrap up. He challenged them when needed. Look at the very end of the chapter. He makes this comment at the end. He says, now, Anastasius, you need to go back. But he says, say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. The word take heed is beware. Translated early in the book, beware. Beware. Beware of the ministry. What's he talking about? Is there something going on here? We don't know. We, we don't know what's he got to be aware of. What's he supposed to... Are there dangers that are in the church where Archippus is? There's false teachers. We know that. Uh, is he doing something wrong? We don't know. God has given you a job. Beware that you do the job. Is he saying, hey, 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 you're slacking off? I don't know, but it's impossible. Is he saying, hey, beware that you complete, you fulfill the ministry because you're not doing it all the way you're supposed to be doing it. We don't know, but we know this. He writes a friend and says, I'm warning you. I'm warning you. Be cautious. Be careful. Step up to the plate. Friends do not. You know that old saying, friends don't let friends drive after they drink because they care, they get involved. Friends on the spiritual level do not say, well, I don't want to say anything. They got a bad attitude at work. They're stealing from their employer. They're, they're, they're not being honest and faithful. But I don't want to say anything or they might be mad at me. If you're a real friend, if you're a real friend, you're going to help them do what's right. You're going to challenge them kindly, graciously, but you're compassionately going to confront. The idea that, oh no, I'm not a friend because I have something in my past. We all have stuff in our past. But if we're going to be godly, we need to confront compassionately, especially our friends, when there's a need. And when we do wrong, don't we want our friends to care for us the same way? Help me out. Help me do it. Final thought here is this idea. Okay, Let me, let me move to the passage, the text that we have. He appreciated and commended them. Every time he's saying, look at Tychicus, look at Onesimus, look at Epaphras. 
And he speaks very complimentary of these individuals. This morning, I took the time to do just this for Pastor Binkley, who had been in our ministry. I could do the same thing and put up other slides about Pastor Art, Pastor Kim. We could talk about, oh, I could tell you stories about Pastor Tony. Okay, a lot. I could talk here and talk and tell you stories about the Rileys. Ooh, there are a number of stories there, aren't there? Okay. We could talk. You know, Tony, I could tell stories about you. Okay. About Operation Teenager and things about there, right? We, we could talk. We could talk about the Geisners. We could talk about the Widmarks. How many years have we been working together in ministry here? Something like that? We, we could be talking about all kinds. I look across this room and I could, we could talk about one another. Maybe we should. Maybe in this week, we should do something really different. We're told we're not supposed to get together with everybody. We're told that we have to be cautious under COVID. But maybe this Thanksgiving, we should do another approach to Thanksgiving. Maybe this week, we should express Thanksgiving to our friends. Maybe we should go the extra mile this week and to say thank you for, for helping me out when you did. When I was hitting a really low moment, you came by. You came by and you encouraged me. Thank you for that word that really stuck to you. Thank you for the way that you helped me out, how you helped my kids out, how you helped, helped out with work and finding a job. Thank you. Maybe here in this church, what we should do this Thanksgiving is we should flood the mail. Not with ballots. We saw how that works, okay? Maybe we should flood the post office this week with writing notes, saying thank you. Thank you for being a deacon. You have no idea what stress that those guys go under at times. Now I just scared everybody away from ever serving in that capacity. Thank you for singing. Thank you for running that sound system. Thank you for working the nursery. Thank you for teaching my kids. Thank you for cleaning in here. Thank you for, for just, you know, thank you for giving a meal and going, calling my, my shut-in relative or parent or whatever who needed the encouragement. Thank you for making that visit. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you personally do what Paul did in this text. Make commendations. Paul mentioned a lot of people. But you and me, we would be, oh, I, I sent out one note. That's it. I've accomplished my yearly task. Paul lists over a hundred people that he gives recognition to in the, in the epistles. How many could you put down? How many should you put down? I don't do this, and I don't say this. And personally, please, don't send me anything. And consider your obligation. I'm not talking about commending me. I don't, I, I'm I'm fine. How am I doing? I'm great. Okay. Does everything I just preach against? Okay. I'm saying minister to one another. In this time of isolation, unisolate yourself. Go the extra mile. Don't let COVID ruin the way you handle friendships of really being a true Christian friend with one another. You be the one. This season of isolation, you break that. You communicate. I don't care if you don't do notes well. Send a text. Say a word. But reach out. Lift up. Encourage individuals.